Dear Church family, this Lord's Day morning, I'd like for us to consider that most precious of gospel truths, that most precious of doctrines, justification by faith in Christ alone. And so critical, dear church family, is this doctrine, so foundational is this, this, this doctrine to the truth of the gospel that we see here the Apostle Paul really going face to face with the other giant apostle, the Apostle Peter, in defence of it. It is fair to say, therefore, that the doctrine of justification uh, by faith in Christ alone is an incredibly important doctrine, a foundational doctrine to the Gospel. Friends, we must earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, as Jude puts it in 1.3. And so for today's sermon text, I would quite simply like for us to consider two principal truths which we see are so evident in today's passage of Holy Scripture. The first truth I believe we see is the fallibility of man. The fallibility of man. Even the greatest of men, the greatest as it were, of God's people, they can make mistakes, can't they? They can get it wrong. That's the first truth, the principle, the fallibility of man. And the second one, of course, is the justification by faith in Christ alone. It's worth defending at all costs, isn't it? And so to give us some context, we read earlier in verse 11 of Peter's coming to Antioch. Antioch, of course, is in Turkey. It's not far from Ephesus. And according to Acts 11.26, it's where believers in Jesus Christ were first called Christians, weren't they? And by the grace of God, many Gentiles were saved there. In fact, it became one of the main churches, didn't it, for Gentile believers. Of course, there were also Jews that were saved, but by and large, it became uh, a church where many Gentiles came to know the Lord by faith in Christ. Whereas Jerusalem, we know from Holy Scripture, was one of the main churches for Christians who had turned from Judaism to Christianity, to faith in Christ. In verse 8 of today's passage, it confirms that the Holy Spirit made Peter the apostle of those of the circumcision of those of the circumcision, Jews, those who were still trusting in the works of the law, observation of the law, the justification. And the, uh, the Holy Spirit made Paul, the apostle, to the Gentiles. Now friends, why, why momentarily do we see these two great men of God, these two of the chiefest apostles, really, why momentarily do we see them, as it were, locking horns? Why do we see these two great men of God momentarily have this disunity, as it were? Well, because the truth of the gospel here, yeah. the leading truth of the gospel, was at stake. Justification by faith in Christ alone for one's salvation, and not by the deeds of the law. 
Hence the Apostle's words in verse 11, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. I don't suppose we understand, at first reading we can appreciate the gravity of the occasion here. I withstood him, the words are very telling, withstood. I withstood him to the face, says the Apostle Paul. This, the great old disciple, the great apostle, Peter, as it were, this is who I withstood. Those in whom the shadow of Peter would convict people of their sin and make people tremble. Such was this godly man. This is who the apostle Paul withstood to the face, stood up to, really because the truth of the gospel here was at stake. Now, dear brethren, like I said, I don't think we can always appreciate the gravity of such passages of Scripture at first reading. So please allow me to labour on this point, um, because it really shows us that the best of men, the best of ministers, the best of academics, the best of God's people can get it wrong at times. They can make mistakes at times. And we ought not to follow men, but God. And it seems to me that we live in such a day, in these days, where it's a, we live in the celebrity age, don't we? Where men are lifted up to this great high pinnacle, as it were. This great status, as it were. We think of the Washers and the MacArthur's and all the other, they're lifted up to this great high pinnacle. And many, many people really follow them in everything. And even, sad to say, in the things which they get wrong. And dear friends, this really shows us the fallibility of men. That we are not to follow men in everything. Only in so much as they agree with the word of God. Both in faith and in practice. The Apostle Paul in today's account shows us very clearly, does it not, that men at best are fallible, even the best of men, even the best of preachers. And so does it show us this throughout church history. This teaches us, friends, that we, we only follow men inasmuch as they follow the word of God, the word of the living God, and no further than that. Think of the striking gravity here of this occasion. Paul reproves Peter publicly, publicly before the whole church at Antioch here. The great Peter he reproves before the whole church at Antioch. He goes even further, does he not? He writes in great detail and the inspiration of God this matter, which would become known to Christians everywhere throughout the known world at the time then, and of course through Christians throughout all time. What a thing to write someone's fault down where all Christians will know of it, dear friends. And you see, friends, how these words that we have written down in our Bibles, they are not men's words, are they? They are written down by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of truth, dear friends, has caused these precious words to be written down for our learning. And so we would do well, would we not, to listen, as it were, with our hearts, to what the Word of God has to teach us this morning. This passage teaches us that 
Truth, the truth as it is in Christ, is more important than unity. Let me say that again. This passage teaches us that the truth as it is in Christ is more important than Christian unity. As important as Christian unity is, and we value it dearly in this church, um, and it's an unbecoming thing to go off on one's own self, as it were, to become uh, those who are contentious. But truth must always, dear friends, come first, as it were. It teaches us this. It also teaches us that great men of God, great ministers, can also make great mistakes. Even assemblies of God's people can make great mistakes. Consider who Paul was reproving here. Peter. Peter, one of the greatest of all the apostles. He was the old disciple, wasn't he? Who had been a constant companion of the Lord Jesus, really from the beginning, pretty much of his ministry. Peter heard the Lord Jesus preach, didn't he? He saw his miracles firsthand, what the Lord Jesus had done. He went out with the Lord Jesus. He came back with the Lord Jesus. And he was blessed by the Lord's private teaching, as it were. He was numbered amongst the Lord's most intimate of acquaintances, of friends. Peter was the apostle to whom the, the keys and the kingdom of heaven were committed, were given. And by his hands, those keys were first used, weren't they? First opened up the door of faith to the Jews at the preaching, uh, preaching at Pentecost. Peter was first opened the doors to the Gentiles as well by going to the house of Cornelius. Remember, where not only could Cornelius, but his whole house was saved. This is who the Apostle Paul here is withstanding, as it were. That word was stood. He, he, is, he is so zealous as he for this truth of the gospel that he is willing to take on this giant of a man, as it were. This godly man, as it were. Because such is at stake here. Such is the truth that's on the line here. In Acts 15, Peter was first to rise up in the church council and to defend God's grace to the Gentiles, wasn't he? And who God could make clean, we shouldn't call unclean, should we? And so, in light of all these things, we see here the great Peter, the great apostle, is clearly at fault here, clearly to be blamed by his actions in bringing the truth of the gospel into disrepute. He was not acting in line with the gospel, was he? And it really shows us, this text shows us, and cries to us, man is fallible. Man makes mistakes. Ministers make mistakes. We should not put our trust wholly upon the words of men, even great men. And we are told that he feared those of the circumcision, didn't he? He separated himself, causing other Jews to dissemble with him. We know that certain other Jews came, and he was uh, uh, afraid of them, separated himself from these Jews, as from, from the Gentiles, and in so doing, 
almost portrayed that there was something there was something unworthy about these Gentiles. That the gospel of grace, that's in Christ, by faith, to have faith in Christ's finished work was not enough. That it needed something additional to be added to that by him, by him removing himself from the Gentiles, separating himself and going over and eating away from them and making the Jews likewise to do the same. And even Barnabas, the great encourager, followed suit. He showed great hypocrisy, didn't he, to the gospel, to the true gospel. And in this one striking circumstance, the great man of God, the apostle, Peter, led many other believers astray by his hypocrisy. And this, we know, was not the first time that Peter committed great sins. We know previously, do, do we not, that he denied the Lord three times, didn't he? We know previously that he did not savour the words of God and discourage the Lord, didn't he? And it would seem that Peter, of all men, was perhaps one of the most fallible, reveals the most fallible of the apostles. Of course, besides, we think of Judas Iscariot. But the, the, the word of God is very clear that even the most greatest of men, as it were, the chiefest of apostles, are at best, with, without grace, they are some of the most fallible of men. They get it wrong. We all get it wrong, don't we? And friends, Peter is not alone in this, is he? What of the greats in the Bible show us the same? Well, look at Abraham, the father of the faithful, the father of all the faithful, who was once unfaithful, who was once without faith, because God took her, didn't he, from the land of earth. He was a pagan, wasn't he? He wasn't a Christian, he wasn't a believer. He was taken from a pagan lifestyle, and God made him a great man of faith, didn't he? And Romans 4, 1, 2, and 3 confirm this very truth. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Verse 2, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not of God. You see, Abraham had nothing in, in, in and of himself, of observation of the law, to justify himself. Nothing, nothing to glory in the of God. Nothing he could point to in the flesh of his life to, to justify him. Because he was a pagan before. Because he got it wrong. Even as a believer, he got it wrong. And verse 3 says, For what saith the scripture? This is the fundamental point I want us to, to take hold of. What saith the scripture? This is the authority that we Christians need to hold on. What saith the scripture? Abraham believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. There we have it. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Without the works. Yeah. He believed that through his seed, that through his family lineage, through Isaac, as it went right through to David, right through to Christ, as it were, that the Messiah of the world would come through his seed. And that every single nation of the world would be blessed through the Saviour. And through his seed, the Saviour would come, and that Saviour would be his salvation. That, that Saviour, Christ, would be his righteousness, his perfect obedience. And that every single nation 
of the world. Uh, those who come to turn from their sin and trust alone in Christ and His righteousness, turn from their sin to Christ, would be saved, would be converted. Not a righteousness of their own, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord, the righteousness which comes from above. Even when Abraham was a believer, he made some bad mistakes, didn't he? He listened to his wife, Sarah, didn't he? In marrying Hagar and taking her to wife in her desperateness for a child. Do we remember Aaron, the high priest who listened to the children of Israel and made them a golden calf? How about wise Solomon, who very unwisely took to himself many wives, contrary to how it was in the beginning, and whose wives, for a time, took him far away from the Lord, and who built places of false worship to the many gods of the nations. Do we remember Joshaphat, the good king, who helped the wicked king, Ahab? What about David, a man after God's own heart? Was he such a man after God's own heart? when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and consequently plotted the death of Uriah? He wasn't, was he? All these things cry out to us. Man is fallible. Man makes mistakes. Do not put your trust in men's words, men's opinions, men's councils, men's assemblies, men's denominations, men's what institutions. Don't put your confidence in these things. Put your confidence in the Lord and His Word. The Lord our righteousness. All these things, dear friends, are written down for our learning. They're written down for a great purpose. They cry out, by the deeds of the Lord, there shall no flesh be justified in my sight. For by the Lord is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20 It's the knowledge of sin. I was speaking to a brother earlier about this. That the Bible teaches us two fundamental truths. It teaches us our own hearts. How sinful and depraved and how lawless they are by nature. And even the most disciplined amongst us break God's laws. And if we're honest, often in our hearts and our minds. It teaches us that we are fallen and that our own righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. It, it's by the law, by the, by the law is the knowledge of sin. It shows us that we cannot get it right by, by our law keeping, by our good deeds. We need a saviour. We need the saviour, Christ. And the reason why I so labour in this particular point is because it seems to me that many, many in our nominal Christianity, which we see has engulfed the West, are more inclined now to hold to men's words rather than the Lord's words. In the Bible, the, the Bible is very clear, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that what? That the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good work, works. God's word has the final court of appeal, as, as it were. 
And just another exhortation, that the Word of God is not just about a literal meaning. When we truly and seriously become serious about the Word of God and seek God's light and seek God's blessing in terms of salvation or guidance as a Christian, it's the living Word, isn't it? It speaks to our very circumstance in life. These words here, dear friends, are not men's words. And I always say to my children, the Bible must be your number one book. Yes, we have good books at home. We've got books on the Reformers and the Puritans and many other such books. But the Bible must be your number one book. We could get so bogged down on all these other books and all the theology in the world that takes us from the Lord. Our righteousness, as it were, to learning about the Lord and actually living for the Lord. And it's the, the word is a living word, doesn't it? It speaks to us. I can one year be reading a passage of scripture, perhaps backslidden or uh, not giving it my attention, and another year I'll read exactly the same attention. And that be met by the Spirit and the grace of God. And it will so speak so deep within my heart, it will so move me, that it will actually completely change the course of where I'm going in life. It's the living word, isn't it? Dear friends, do we treat it as such? Take, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church, basing itself upon a fallible man, Peter, as it were, and not upon the living word, upon Christ and his words. Call no man father, says the scriptures, and in a spiritual sense that is, but they do, do they not? Christ is the only intercessor between God and man, as it were, but they've made the Pope and men their intercessors. Haven't they? Fallible men. Men as sinful as we are, probably even worse, for all we know. Those churches that align themselves with the Roman Catholic Church and the churches together movement, as it were, are partakers of her sins. They aid and abet her sins. And that's why we have nothing got to do with the churches together movement to this church and ecumenicalism in a false sense, that is. Nothing got to do with it. And the amount of pressure that we've got in this fellowship to join hands, as it were. And they may call us all manner of names and everything else. But the truth of the gospel is at stake here, friends. The truth of the gospel is on the line here, isn't it? You know, I've often heard it. I've often heard it. In fact, this week I went on a business trip. But before, I thought I'd just fit in an hour's worth of evangelism <laughs> in Tiverton. I popped into Tiverton and I met a man. And he seemed like a, a genuine believer, actually. But he, and, I, and I said, he said, well, what church do you go to? And I said, well, this is the church that I go to. And he said, well, this is a church I go to. I won't, I won't mention any names. But he said, well, why don't you go to this church that I go to? I've been going there for 30 odd years now. And I said, well, I, I take issue with some of the things that they do. And he said, well, what? And I, like I said, I don't like to be confrontational. Well, they have women, they have women vicars. That they, they, they join together, the church is together movement. And I named a few things. And I, I said, I, I don't, I'm not intentionally trying to take you away. But they've compromised massively on the truth of the gospel and on, on the word. But he says, but he's a good man. This person's a good person. 
But these, they've been here for 30 odd years. And I really felt for this man because he seemed like a really nice person, a really nice believer. But I said, where do you get your authority from? And he, he may be a good man. He may be a good family man. He may, he may do many things. But where are you getting your authority from? Do you get it from the Word of God? And he, it was almost like as a light bulb that came on. Good men, dear friends, worldly wise men, and decent men can send us and lead us astray, right into hell. They can. The Bible is very clear about that. How many charismatic churches follow in the bad example of Edward Irving? If you've ever learned about the man Edward Irving, who was the forerunner of the charismatic movement in succumbing to the delusion of speaking in the babble of an unknown tongue. And God's not the author of confusion, is he? He's author of order. He wants us to understand simple, the simple truths of the gospel. It is the great folly of the natural man and at times compromised Christians, and I speak of myself at times, to lean upon great ministers, great institutions, great articles of faith, great denominations. It is the great folly of us, as it were, to make ministers and institutions our pope, as it were. And to make these things our confidence and our salvation. When the Lord, and not the Lord himself, and not his righteousness. We all naturally love to have a Pope of our own, don't we? We do. That's us. By nature we all are inclined to lean upon some great man that we can see. Rather than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who we can't see by faith. You can imagine Barnabas. Just imagine Barnabas thinking within himself when Peter separated himself from the Gentiles, thinking surely, surely this one of the chiefest of apostles cannot be in the wrong here. Surely this man of God who went in with the Lord, who, committed, who did these mighty acts with the Lord, who, who was first opened at the doors of the Gentiles and Jews, surely this man cannot be in the wrong. But what, what happened? He was led astray. With him, wasn't he? He followed suit. And dear friends, it speaks, doesn't it? Do not put your trust in man. Man is fallible. Man makes mistakes. It cries out to us. Put your trust in the words of the living God. And in the truth of the gospel written down in the Bible. Not what men may say. And the problem I think nowadays, which we have in our celebrity age, is that many Christians, I'm sad to say, don't have the convictions for themselves. They have other men's convictions. What does MacArthur say on this? What does Washer say on this? What does Vody say on this? What does this man say on this? But what about yourself? Do we take the pains to read the scriptures ourselves? All scriptures given by inspiration of God are profitable for us. Study to show thyself approved of God. Pastors, ministers, and, and I'm not saying, you know, we can learn many things from some of these men. Many things. But it's the Christian that must give himself to the word of God. Heartily and prayerfully. Crying to the Lord every day. Dear friends, ministers and preachers, they are for the perfecting of the saints. They bevel off the edges, as it were, of the saints. They can help them and give them direction, but they are not 
what the Christian should hope in. The Christian must have his own convictions, because I tell you now, many, many people have been left, left, led astray by putting their hope in some great preacher or the other. And what happens? That man will let them down, won't they? That man will suddenly, you know, start up a, a gym <laughs> or some karate class and give it some hard time. You think, well, hold on a second, what's what's this person doing? You know, suddenly this great man will lead people astray. We must have our own convictions, surely. You see, friends, what are the best of Christian ministers and preachers? Are they not men of like passion as we are? Are they not men subject to make great mistakes and lead others astray? Are they not men who by certain actions can lead many astray? They are, aren't they? Ministers may indeed be worthy of double honour, but don't make the Pope out of a minister, dear friends, or any man, as it were. And of course it is right to, to show honour to those who labour in the work for love's sake, as it were. Um, but study thyself to be approved of God. Do not place his words and opinions side by side by the word of God. Difference. Don't do that. Do not spoil him with flattery, especially over advantage. Do not think that they can make mistakes, because we all can make mistakes betimes. Do not say within thyself, I have hope, because such and such a man told me that I'm a Christian, or such and such a man said that I'm, I'm a good person. Don't do that. Rather be ready to prayerfully and heartily read the word of God yourself. And say, I have hope, because the, what the preacher has said, I have examined the truth for myself. Heartily, I have sought the Lord, and I am convicted and persuaded, because the word of God does not lie. That person perhaps can exaggerate, but the word of God never. And that's where I'm putting my hope in. That's where I'm putting my assurance in. Not in the fallible words of men. And yes, I've said that we agree with preachers as far as they agree with the word of God. But no further than that, dear friends. If our comforts would be lasting, we must fetch living water from the well of life itself. If, if our comforts would be lasting. Friends, it is, it is a, certainly possible to have attained a vast amount of knowledge in reading the books and watching sermons online and such the like, but, but be in great ignorance concerning the gospel, the true gospel of Christ. You, these things are possible. Church history teaches us. You know, when you look at the great 18th century evangelists, many of them, for years before they were actually used of God, were in great ignorance. We think of the Wesleys, we think of Grimshaw. I mean, these men for years were in ignorance until the light of the gospel came shining in. As it were, they were learned, weren't they? What are the most educated of Christian ministers if they are not educated and moved by the Holy Spirit first? Of course, sound Christian books ought never to be despised. Of course not. But friends, it is astonishing to me to observe how vast a man's intellect may be, as it were, and yet know very little of the gospel of grace and hold him to justification by faith alone. It's astonishing, isn't it? 
And, and with all the theology we have in the world today, and all the reformed institutions and things, and how little, actually, we see of true saving faith, and actually how, they, how, how little we see of true, true justification, people truly holding to the Lord, as it were, true saving grace experientially, as it were. And I have no doubt that the leaders of Oxford University in the 18th century knew far more in Latin and Hebrew and Greek than did Whitfield and Wesley. I have no doubt that they they knew so much more, didn't they? But they knew very little of the saving gospel of Christ and justification by faith alone. Sorry, in Christ alone. What do these things teach us, friends? Man is fallible, as it were. Man makes mistakes. Do not put your, your trust in the opinions of men, neither in great councils, neither in the confidence of the flesh, neither in great institutions. Infallibility, according to the Holy Scriptures, is not to be found amongst educated men, but only upon the words of the living God. God makes wise the simple, as it were. I remember preaching this a long time ago at a church, and someone was really offended at me. Later on he said, so are you calling me simple? <laughs> is that why you say simple? And it really is, when we understand what we are by nature, the Bible must be our ultimate authority for both faith and practice. Friends, we would do well to learn from the Apostle Paul's example in today's account that to keep the truth is more important than to maintain unity. A little leaven leavens a whole lump, doesn't it? And like I said, that shouldn't mean that we think we're God's soul recruit, as it were, and be uh, contentious and unbecoming as a Christian. It doesn't mean that. But it means that we, we always should have it in mind to stand uh, true for the Lord, as it were, for His truth, for His gospel first, as it were. It is a sad reality in our present day, even amongst Reformed churches, that men have become more concerned about how they appear to their congregations, how they appear to other fellow ministers, how they appear, and that's why we see all these meetings. You know, there's the scene in all these, where we all have all these meetings with other ministers and fraternals and all these things, instead of actually living out the gospel by faith uh, for the Lord. And I'm not against these things, but it really seems to me in Reformed churches, we see so many Reformed churches dying, because it seems they, they're more interested in, in, in what people think of them, as it were, than actually living out the truths of the, of the gospel, authentic. Calvinism, a Spurgeon put it. And of course, any that seem to be an enthusiast, as it were, well, of course, they are accused, aren't they, of controversy, like, like Whitfield was. It is my firm conviction that if a man be a doer of the word of God in terms of the gospel, the true gospel, he will have to endure many false insinuations, many false things said about him, as the Apostle Paul did. He was defending himself in this passage as well. He will be called a troubler, as it were, of Israel. Let me just say, let, let men say what they will, dear friends. 
men said, because God is on his throne. The Lord our righteousness is our trust. The Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah says, that's really is, is where we, we go for justification. Not in what men think of us. This, that's a snare. The Lord, I am righteous in the Lord. And who shall condemn me now? That I'm in the Lord. That I'm trusting in His righteousness and His word and His ways. No one, friends, the Lord our righteousness. Is this not why the Apostle Paul rebuked Peter, the Apostle Peter? Because simple faith in Christ's righteousness on our behalf was at stake. That's why, wasn't it? Because he showed by his disassembling from the Gentiles that this something extra was needed to become a Christian. Not simple faith in Christ's imputed righteousness. Upon Christ's perfect sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, we, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, is it? It's through Christ alone. He, remember the thief upon the cross. How was he justified in the sight of Almighty God? Did he have any works to bring to the table and say to the Lord, Lord, I've done all these things? He had nothing, didn't he? He spent a life thieving and stealing, not only from men, but from God, didn't he? He had nothing to boast of at all. But he believed, didn't he? Something happened on that cross, amazing something happened. All the people that said, this is the Son of God, he did all these things, he saved other people. And then something switched in his heart and his mind. This is the Son of God. He did save other people. This is the Messiah, this is the Christ. And he can save my soul. Even a lifetime of sin. And what did he do? He believed that Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, can save him. That his Christ's righteousness can cover his unrighteousness. That Christ's obedience unto death can cover his disobedience. That Christ's blood can cleanse his Adam's tainted blood. He believed all these things and that was accounted counted to him for righteousness. What a wonderful thing this is. That God should look upon us. We who have stolen from God our lives that he has given us. We have lived in sin, haven't we? We have got it wrong, haven't we? And that, that Christ should look upon us in such love. And that he should so move in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That he should put people and things in our life, means, to point us to him. Not to any minister or any person, but to him. And say, that this is the way. Walk here in it. These things are wonderful, aren't they, dear friends? No man or woman can have solemn peace or true assurance until they embrace with all their heart the doctrine that we are counted righteous before God because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. You'll never have assurance with God unless you embrace this true doctrine of the Scriptures, this foundation doctrine of the Scriptures. Faith in this will save us. Gospel works will validate and establish the work, the work of the Spirit, won't it? They will establish, like James, we've learned in James recently, the Epistle of James, 
It's talking about gospel works. The faith that where we trust in Christ and his righteousness, the, the works come as a result of that, don't they? They establish the faith as it were. It's never the other way around. It's never we work to get salvation, as so many people teach in the prosperity gospel, in the social gospel. Friends, anything that adds to justification by faith in Christ alone is a false gospel. It's not a true gospel. In conclusion, let me just finish with Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are ye saved, through, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's a free gift. A gift for you this morning, if you did not yet know Him. You can trust in His righteousness alone, and He will save you give you a new heart and give you his spirit. And in Romans 3.28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Amen. Thank you.